This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Well, today we want to talk about the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. This is the story of when Jesus was separated from his family and they had to go looking for him. And where he starts to separate from his family. And this is something we've all faced in our lives. I mean, it's the stuff of great literature from Huck Finn to Luke Skywalker, from Laura Ingalls to Moana. I always say Moana to irritate my children, but I know it's Moana. Um, We all face this in our own lives too. Our family is everything to us up until a point when we suddenly have to separate ourselves from the family. And I see this in my teenagers at home all the time. There becomes this moment where they have to find fault with stuff even when there isn't fault there and they have to point out fault whenever it is there. And I remember my own teenagehood and how I had literally left my family at age 16. At age 17, I got my own apartment and I really had to learn later in life to return to my family and become a part of my family again. Anyway, I I think it's helpful for us as we look at how we navigated this to look at how Jesus Christ and the Holy Family navigated this. So what I'll do is I'll talk about, uh, well, first I'll read the gospel passage so we know what we're talking about. I'll kind of imagine ourselves in the scene a little bit. Then talk about ways in which we undervalue the family because the important ways in which the family enriches us. Then talk about ways the family kind of messes things up uh, and drives us away. And I want to end by talking about how Jesus's divinity throws a whole new monkey wrench into this that is both makes it more difficult for Mary and Joseph to deal with their boy, but also makes it easier for all of us to deal with our lives and our families. So the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke tells the tale this way. Each year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to festival custom. After they had completed its days, as they were returning, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Thinking that he was in the caravan, they journeyed for a day and looked for him among their relatives and acquaintances. But not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus advanced in age and wisdom before God and man. So that's the way Luke tells the tale. And it's unfortunately very easy for us to kind of put ourselves in a lost child story. 
either we have been a lost child or we have lost a child or we've seen enough news reports and true crime stories about lost children to know how this kind of thing goes. The fathers of the church, interestingly, are quick to defend the Holy Family, and they've got a point uh, that this wasn't neglect. So Jesus was 12, and the way these caravans, these traveling caravans would work, the men would kind of go as one group, the women would grow as, go as a separate group, and the children would go with one group or the other. Jesus was turning 12, which means he was on the cusp of manhood. So frankly, I think Joseph probably had less excuse thinking that Jesus was with Mary than Mary kind of naturally believed that Jesus was with Joseph. So I think Mary gets a bigger pass than Joseph on that. So Mary and Joseph started to look for Jesus for a couple of days among their relatives and acquaintances. And you can imagine how this kind of thing goes, right? Because you've done this. You go to one group and say, you know, have you seen Jesus? And they kind of there's this dawning realization that you're really serious and you're really scared. And then uh, you kind of see, you, you expect each time that the people are going to say, oh yeah, he's right here. And the search will be over because that's what usually happens, right? But then you see their look of bewilderment and you hear their, no, we haven't seen him. And panic starts to set in a little bit harder. Well, Mary and Joseph finally went back to the temple and um, Mary is the one who puts the question to Jesus. She finds him there speaking to the elders. You can kind of imagine what that must have been like. He's in this officious building, sitting down with these wise men. But she, with a mother's touch, says, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. So she really kind of turns the screws of guilt a little bit there, uh, as, which is, I think, appropriate. That's what a mom's supposed to do in this kind of situation. And Jesus' answer at first looks like the kind of answer that any red-blooded boy would give. He kind of repositions the whole thing to make himself look like he's in the right. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? So if one of my sons did that, I would say, don't talk back to your mother. Try to <laughs> and explain to her why you're here. Um, but in the case of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we know that this isn't just a boyhood excuse in fact, uh, St. Luke goes on to say they did not understand what he said to them. So this was a, a serious statement that Jesus made that wasn't taken as a reframing of, of the situation to get a boy out of trouble. Also, by the way, it's important to note that that's how ancient authors would attribute a story. By saying that they did not understand what he said to them, Luke is tipping you that he got the story from one of them, one of Mary and Joseph. And the candidate there is Mary, since Joseph would have passed away by the time Luke was writing. So there's a couple of things going on here. One, Mary and Joseph are learning, like every parent has to learn eventually, that their son is not their own, but he is his own person and has to start his own story. Uh, but they're learning something a little bit more than most of us learn. They're learning, or learning with new depth and understanding because they knew already that their son actually has a different parent, a divine parent. So let's look at each of these issues and see what it says about Jesus and hopefully what it can shed on our own lives, what it means to be a family, what it means to have personal autonomy, and what it means for Jesus to be God. So what John Paul II says about our time could easily be said about Mary and Joseph's time as well. 
He said, quote, the individual today is often suffocated between two extremes represented by the market and the state. At times, it seems as though man exists only as a producer and consumer of goods or as an object of state administration. People lose sight of the fact that in society, neither the market nor the state is our final purpose, since life itself has a unique value which the state and market must serve, end quote. So we've seen the intrusion of the state and market in Jesus's story already. You saw the intrusion of the state in a major way because, you know, the whole reason that Mary and Joseph were on the road at nine months pregnant was that they had to fulfill a bureaucratic duty of the state and go register in a place where he owned land in his hometown. You saw the market also in that same story because they went to stay in the inn and they had no room for them in the inn. So you already see the state and the market as forces that are kind of impersonal forces that cause discomfort and not welcome to the Holy Family in the story so far. John Paul II goes on to say that in the face of these dehumanizing institutions of the market and the state, there is one thing which connects us, which makes us human, which makes us own our own skin. He says, quote, it is in interrelationships on many levels that a person lives and that society becomes more personalized. These develop as real communities of persons and strengthen the social fabric, preventing society from becoming an anonymous and impersonal mass, as unfortunately often happens today. In order to overcome today's widespread individualistic mentality, what is required is a concrete commitment to solidarity and charity beginning in the family, with the mutual support of husband and wife and the care which the different generations give to one another, end quote. So in the face of the dehumanizing effects of the state and market, what humanizes us is real communities of other living people, and especially the community of the family, the primordial community, the basis for civilization. We all know how family love works when it works the way it's supposed to work. We love family members just because they're family. Uh, we don't love them because we want something in return. We don't love them because we like them. Sometimes we don't like them, but we love them. We don't love them uh, because they're agreeable or because they, their tastes match ours. We love them just because they're family. And we love them unconditionally and we find in them unconditional acceptance, and that gives us peace and a great kind of rest. Well, family didn't get that way by accident. It got that way because the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion taught families to be that way, and after them, Christian religion and Christian culture taught families to be that way. Pope Benedict XVI writes about the harsh world of the ancient pagan Romans and Greek. He says, quote, in the writings of the church fathers, a lack of feeling insensitivity toward the suffering of others is considered typical of paganism. In contrast to this attitude, the Christian faith holds up the God who suffers with men and thereby draws us into his compassion. The Mater Dolorosa, the mother whose heart is pierced by a sword, is an iconic image of this fundamental attitude of Christian faith, end quote. 
So the pagan virtues in the ancient world were ambition, excellence, and above all, pietas. This is in Roman society. Pietas was the highest virtue, and what that means is your place, your duty to society, uh, which, as it turns out, is the highest virtue in Confucianism and in many kind of ancient systems of virtue. Judeo-Christian virtues, such as humility, kindness, and helping those in need, were actually seen as weaknesses often by ancient Roman standards and ancient Greek standards. But in Christian families, they transformed the family into a new kind of thing, a civilization of love. So you can see the much gentler, kinder kind of virtue of Judaism already in the stories we've read. In Roman pagan religions, women would never be allowed in the temple. They had their own temple services rarely, sometimes. Men went to the temple frequently. Women were not allowed in. But we've already seen in the stories that Mary goes in and out of the temple as she wishes. Children belonged to their parents in the pagan world. Pagan fathers could reject infants and expose them to the elements, just get rid of them. They could reject kids that were older. They could reject daughters. And when they accepted them, the boys had a very strict duty to carry on the family gods. And so they had a very strict duty to their dad. And the women, when they entered a new family, had a very strict duty to that new father and that new husband. In fact, you see this in, in the Aeneid, when Aeneas gathers his household gods, he's fleeing Troy desperately and getting his things together. And the most important thing for him is to get his household gods and take them with him. Jews, however, belonged to a God who could take care of them wherever they were, whether they were in exile, whether they had the little statues that they started with or not. In the ancient world, you also belonged to the Roman Empire that gave you lots of privileges and duties. So you had these duties to the state and duties to the empire as a commercial force. The empire was already becoming a huge commercial force. Wagon axles in the um, American West, if you look at the Oregon Trail, were uh, a standard four feet, eight and one half inches, which is the old Roman measurement. What they did is they made that standard so that the wheel ruts would match up um, from one place to the other because you belong to the state and your wheel axles had to say that you belong to the state. They also had the first kind of weights and measurements that were standardized throughout the realm so that they could um, define people and define your products the way they wanted to. So all of this, the state was starting to reach into people's lives. Sometimes in modern days, we feel like wage slaves, but there were actually in the ancient time, lots of literal commercial slaves. But we can relate to all of this because this is exactly, it's now such a part of our lives. It's nothing new. It's who we are. Alastair McIntyre put it, what we confront today is a new Leviathan, the state and market in a monstrous amalgam. So the state and market are now these forces in our lives that we have to reckon with one way or the other. And in many ways, our families have become redefined by the state and the marketplace. And we face a real crisis of the family in America. So in many ways today, our lives are more defined by our careers, by our politics than they are by our family. Uh, in fact, we're in the midst of a great unfriending on Facebook and a great moment where families are being torn apart because of political affiliation. 
So suddenly it's more important that I hang out with Republicans or that I hang out with Democrats than that I hang out with my own family members. You also have families who now both parents work, and not just that, but both parents bring their work home with them. Then you have the divorce revolution, which has also made family trees very complicated. So identification with family was so strong in ancient days that you have the sons of Zebedee, you have Simon, son of Jonah, you have Kristen Lavren's daughter in the medieval times, who was literally Lavren's daughter. That's what her name means. We kind of have a version of this. The dad's surname is then taken up by the whole family in our culture. That's like saying Lavren's daughter in a way. But with divorce and fatherlessness at epidemic levels, our family names are no longer the clear markers of who we are that they once were. Gen Z now have different last names in their parents, different last names in their brothers and stepsisters. Gen Z kids or kids of divorce often have to become freelance children who connect with one family or another. They have to be the kind of person that they should be for this mom, for this stepmom, for this grandparent, for this step-grandparent family. It becomes very complicated to live in a, in a in a new 21st century family. And it's further complicated by cohabitation, which means that there are lots of children who don't even have married parents or never did. In vitro fertilization, which means there's people who exist who don't know who their biological parents were or and have no hope of ever knowing. And above all, by our tendency to move far away from our families. Uh, my own nine kids were born in Maryland, Virginia, Connecticut, and Kansas. They live three to four states away from either grandparent, and they've never even met. A number of my children have never even met all of their cousins. I mean, none of them have met all of their cousins. Some of them have never met any of their cousins, I think. Uh, anyway, it's a very complicated situation that families live in nowadays. So what happens in all of this is that we no longer, when we no longer have our family as an identifier of who we are, we have to turn to the state or the marketplace, either our tastes in what we buy or our tastes in politics, our allegiance to one state or one party or another uh, to define who we are. Another blow to the identification of families today are the small size of families. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Mary and Joseph only had one child, after all. But in the story of finding the child Jesus in the temple, we saw how the Holy Family was embedded in a much larger extended family with lots of children. Uh, they're so close to each other that they can be traveling and not see their son and not worry about it because they figure, oh, sure, he must be with somebody else. Well, this is something that we desperately need more of today, both more siblings and more proxy siblings, which come about by proximity to cousins and acquaintances. Mary Eberstadt collected some great research findings in her book, Primal Screams, about the importance of siblings. She talks about the importance of having a lifelong peer group and how many benefits that gives people. People who you grow up with, who knew you back when, who know your weaknesses, know your greatness, you know, can forgive you when you do the wrong thing and can buck you up when you need it. And that doesn't exist without siblings. That's how you get lifelong peer group is through siblings or through cousins that are very close or the neighborhood group of kids that kind of bands together. 
Also, siblings having siblings now means having aunts and uncles and cousins later. It's fascinating in her book when she kind of looked at the future to see what happens in a population where most families are like 2.5 kids. What happens to the number of uncles and aunts and cousins later? And it's a totally different landscape than what we see in stories and what we remember from our own childhood. And being lonely and being torn apart, whether by not having enough siblings or cousins nearby, or by being torn apart by divorce, is that you're left very vulnerable to financial ruin, to medical hardships. You just have no support system of people who will unconditionally care for you one way or the other. And that, ironically, pushes you back to the state and the market. You have to pay somebody to do stuff that your community would have taken care of otherwise, or you have to get government assistance to do things that your family would have taken care of otherwise. So it's a vicious circle. The vicious circle is that the state and the market drive you to be more lonely and autonomous and isolated. And then once that reaches its fruition in a broken family, the state and market are the ones you have to turn to in order to get out of that rut. So anyway, this is self-determination run amok. When we try to attack life alone, we become easy prey to being owned and defined by other people who want to own and define us and use our loneliness to, to make us who they want us to be. So our families need to be more like Mary's and Joseph's for us to rediscover ourselves and look at how their family is. So they're a family that takes pilgrimages. They go every year up to Jerusalem for the festivals. Uh, They're also a family that makes sacrifices for their faith. I mean, it's not easy to go to Jerusalem every year for the festivals. You also see in the interaction between Mary and Jesus that they're also a family that's very frank with each other, willing to say what's on their mind, willing to not hold back in their opinion one to the other. So that's, that's a positive thing. It's something that all of our families can learn from the Holy Family. But, lest we forget, there's also a family-mindedness that can run amok. So I remember I was telling, I would always tell my students this whole state versus market and the way to reclaim yourself is to rediscover the family. And one year, in order to show it in my film class, I showed the 1958, the 1959 movie Marty. It won the Academy Award that year. Um, but it's Ernest Borgnine as this older man living with his mom who eventually finds true love. And I remembered it as a great movie where it shows these, you know, broader communities than we have nowadays. There's people saying, oh, I'll talk to you after mass about that and that kind of thing. So I just, I had a kind of a nostalgic love for this movie, but I hadn't watched it for a while. And when I showed it, I was really shocked because it told the opposite story of what I've just told you have um, this family that's very close, but they're also very intrusive. His mother basically tries to stop his one shot at happiness by opposing this uh, new relationship he finds with this woman. And his friends, you know, he's still hanging out at the neighborhood bar, but his friends are holding him back from what will make him who he needs to be. Uh, And, you know, if it was just, I didn't think of it as anti-family propaganda. I thought of it as a story that rings very true. This is also something that happens in families. Um, but the, the 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 thing to take, the lesson to take from that is that we have this strong temptation to uh, control people in our families, and we have to learn not to do that. 
I know it's really, really hard for me as a parent to have raised somebody from diapers through school and made all sorts of sacrifices for them and been responsible for many of the best decisions in their lives to then see them go off and make their own decisions and their own uh, decision and who they're going to marry and their own decision and where they're going to live and what they're going to do. And, and you feel like you have authority and say so where you can step in and say, no, don't do that. That's absurd. But you quickly learn if you try to do that, that you have no authority and no say so because you don't, you literally don't. These are their own person now and you have to, you have to find a way to let them go and be their own person. And I know parents who have um, overstepped their bounds and kind of ruined relationships with kids forever by missing this point. So along with learning to deal with family life, we have to learn how to give family members their freedom. We have to learn in our own lives how to separate ourselves from our family and demand our own freedom and not to do it in such a way that you cut off relationships with people forever. That's hard. Uh, Joseph and Mary learned this when Jesus was 12. We learn it at a later point in our culture. Um, but they're real models for what to do in this moment also. So notice that Mary asks Jesus a question. She doesn't jump to conclusions and decide, oh, you've done a terrible thing for this terrible reason. No, she, she puts the question to him. Uh, and notice also the fathers of the church like to point out that Jesus is a model 12-year-old. He, um, he doesn't instruct rabbis or lecture them, although he could because he's God. Instead, he asks them questions. Uh, whatever the questions were, they led them to say, to be astounded at his wisdom. But the fathers of the church actually tell, you know, they say, teach your children this. Teach them to ask questions and not assume that they know things. Actually, It's actually a great um, lesson for 52-year-olds too, I think. When his parents finally find Jesus in the temple and ask what he'd been doing, he says this immortal line, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? If that sounds like a declaration, it must have have been hard to be Joseph in that moment. Sounds like a declaration that he's not going to be, Joseph's not going to be his father anymore. The gospel is quick to tell us a couple lines later that Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And the next time we hear Jesus, uh, we hear Joseph mentioned in the gospel, it's when Jesus is called the carpenter's son. So he's not denouncing Joseph by calling the temple his father's house. Uh, what he is doing is announcing his divinity, making his divinity clear once again. We're going to talk a lot more about the divinity of Christ in this podcast. And I think we already have covered the divinity of Christ a little bit in this podcast, but It's worth noting that the gospel says Mary and Joseph did not understand what Jesus was saying. Now, that doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph literally didn't know that Jesus was special and that he had a special relationship with God or even that he was divine. I mean, they must have. They'd lived with him for 12 years. A and B, as we've seen over and over again, they were told over and over again that this is what was going on. But what it does mean is that even when we understand theological truths, they have to be something that we ruminate on and learn more deeply and in a deeper way. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI comments on this passage, again and again, Jesus's words exceed our rational powers. Again and again, they surpass our capacity to understand. 
The temptation is to reduce them, to bend them to our own criteria. But we have to have the humility to leave intact this loftiness that so often overtaxes us, not to reduce Jesus's sayings by asking to what extent we can take him at his word. He takes us completely at our word. Believing means submitting to this loftiness and slowly growing into it, end quote. So Mary and Joseph submitted totally to the reality that they had a divine son, but it had to be something that they understood deeper over time. And actually, I think it's harder to believe that a 12-year-old boy is God. It's it's easy to believe that a sweet little baby is the divine you know, son of God, the uh, child most mild and who's asleep in the hay. And it's easy to believe that this virile man who's walking on water is God. It's kind of hard to believe that a middle schooler is God, especially if you have a middle schooler as a child. But their middle schooler was God. And what Pope Benedict is trying to say is that we need to be careful here and not think that we understand this too well on the one hand, or not think that we can discount it on the other. If we think that we understand it too well, we can imagine that we can think what it must have been like to be both God and man. We have no idea what it felt like to be both God and man, and we never will. But what we do know is what it means to act, react, and talk as God when you're both God and a 12-year-old. As the Catechism puts it, Christ's whole earthly life his words and deeds, his silences and sufferings, indeed his manner of being and speaking, is a revelation of the Father. Jesus can say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if you ask, what would God do if he was a middle schooler? We can answer with certainty, well, he would stay in the temple while his parents went back home and then discover that he was missing and then come back and tell them that he must be about his father's house because that's what he did. So it's possible to misunderstand Jesus' divinity and think of him as not a man at all, but as God imitating a man. That's also a mistake. As the Second Vatican Council put it, he worked with human hands, he thought with a human mind, acted by human choice, and loved with a human heart. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like us, in all things except sin. Well, if he had a human mind, we have a great mystery here. The divine son of God had to learn from a human father. As the book of Hebrews put it, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he did. Pope Francis puts it this way. He says, during the hidden years in Nazareth, Jesus learned at the school of Joseph to do the will of the father. The catechism says the same thing in a slightly different way. It says the everyday obedience of Jesus to Joseph and Mary both announced and anticipated the obedience of Holy Thursday which is an extraordinary statement if you think about it. His obedience to this man, Joseph, is what made it possible for him to obey God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane on the day before he died. This also means that Joseph's fatherhood, quote, was already inaugurating his work of restoring what the disobedience of Adam had destroyed. It's that work that we're going to start taking up in earnest in the next episode, when John the Baptist will arrive on the scene and set the stage for Jesus to do the work only he can do in his extraordinary story. But let's not leave the finding the temple just yet. In the end, we can put ourselves in the story in two ways. We can put ourselves in the story by imagining us being Mary and Joseph with a lost child. But 
one thing we all know about is that we've all been us with having lost Jesus in our lives. In the story, Mary and Joseph have Jesus with them until they realize they don't. And in my life, I had a relationship with Jesus until I realized I didn't. Uh, my family will, members will have a relationship with Jesus until they realize they don't. So how do we lose Jesus? We might assume he will always be with us automatically and stop making an effort to check in with him, which is what Mary and Joseph did on the road. We might expect our kids to learn about him by osmosis and suddenly discover that he's not with us like we expected him to be. We might even not notice that Jesus is missing from our lives. Mary and Joseph journeyed for a day thinking that Jesus was somewhere nearby, just out of sight. And we do the same thing. We lose his presence in our lives and we think he's somewhere just out of sight. The love in our marriage is gone for the moment, but it's somewhere just out of sight. And when we do try to get him back or try to get our love back or try to get our life back, we do it in a merely human way at first. We go among our relatives and acquaintances. We go among the people that we know and try to look for this thing that we're missing. And as important as our family is, as important as our community is, that we don't find it there. The equation isn't me plus family equals fulfillment, or even me plus God equals fulfillment. Ultimately, it has to be me plus family plus God equals fulfillment, or me plus my community plus God equals fulfillment. Ultimately, Mary and Joseph never found Jesus until they looked for him in Jerusalem in the temple. And ultimately, we will not find Jesus until we look for him in the church. You do that by looking for Jesus in the church's teachings. You do that by looking for Jesus in his sacraments. And above all, you do that by looking for Jesus in the tabernacle. And there, if you spend time with Jesus in the tabernacle, like the elders in the temple, you will always find that he'll be there waiting for you and asking you questions that will astound you with their wisdom. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.